book of James, and we're looking at verses 1 to 18, that's page 897 in your pew Bible, if you forgot to bring your Bible today. That's the book of James, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you, ever you, you, you face trials of any kind, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lack wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all, his, all he does. The brother, the brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossoms fall, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God tempted me, is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all his creation. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the understanding of this his own precious word. Let's bow our heads and hearts for prayer. If you have ever been lost, have you ever been lost? And, and I don't mean just, just a little bit lost, like in the shopping mall, I mean really lost. Uh, I know uh, there was there was one time my brother and I with with our family were uh, were going for a hike in the in the Gatineau Hills in the Ottawa Valley, and uh, my brother and I wandered off and quickly found ourselves lost, lost in the woods, and it was starting to get dark. We wandered around and and uh, actually tried to to go up to high ground to see if we could see um, to see get a bit of a vantage point to try to find our way out again, but, but we, were, we were hopelessly lost. And my, my parents had actually even found, sent a, a park ranger um, out looking for us, and we were so relieved when we actually were reunited with, with our parents again, because it was, it was getting pretty close to dark and we were pretty scared. But that, would, that was serious, and that was potentially very dangerous, but there was a far, far more dangerous situation that was faced by Albert and Rita Kretchen. You probably remember the story quite well. They were driving from Penticton uh, down to Las Vegas, and they got lost. And they, 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 they then got stuck in the mud, 
And after several days of not seeing another car, Albert headed out on foot to try to, to find rescue. And uh, you probably know the story. His wife was stuck there in the van for 49 days. 49 days alone in the wilderness, living on, um, on puddle water and trail mix. And uh, thankfully, a family came by on ATVs and were able to rescue her, but 49 days lost in the woods, and, and her husband has never been found. And she actually blames a faulty GPS for the tragedy, a GPS that, that steered them in the wrong direction. So that GPS for them became a matter of life and death. But we're going to be looking at an issue this morning that is also a life and death matter, but a far, far more grave situation than even that that was faced by the Cretians, because this is a matter of eternal life versus eternal death. So this morning, I really want to be focusing in on James chapter 12, sorry, James chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. So let me read that for us again, just so we can, can get our, our, begin to get our mind around this passage. James 1.12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's turn to the Lord once more together in prayer. Our Lord and our God, we do thank you for the challenge and for the encouragement that comes in this passage of Scripture. Lord, we thank you for the challenge that it lays down to live a holy life, to live a life that reflects true faith. And Lord, we thank you that this passage also shows us your character, for our faith is a reflection of your character. So Lord, I pray this morning that we would submit ourselves to what you would teach us by your Spirit as is, what, as what is presented today in your Word. I pray, Father, that you will help us to come away changed. That, you will come away, that we will come away with a better perspective of who you are and a better perspective of who we are in the light of your character. We pray these things in the most powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In my preparation for this sermon this morning, I debated whether I was going to preach this text over one week or two weeks or over three weeks. And I talked to a couple of people about it, and I decided on a compromise. I'm not usually a compromising individual, but in this case, one sermon won out, or actually... What I'm going to be doing is one sermon over two weeks. 
Because although there is a great deal for us to learn in each one of these verses, it's essential that we see how these verses hold together, how they fit together, and what they show us in their, in their proper context. So what they're really showing us is really the same idea from four different angles. I don't want us to miss the big picture that James is again pointing to the character of true faith and its fruits, and that the character of true faith is actually grounded in the character of God. So this morning, I want us to be seeing whether our faith is true faith and whether our faith is, pro is producing real fruit for God's glory. I want us to see as well that all of this is grounded in who God is. That who we are as Christians is a reflection of who God is. Now, if you have an NIV Bible in front of you, you'll see that in this, in this passage, they, they break it up a little bit differently. They actually have uh, verse 12 on its own, and then verses 13 and 14 together, and then 16 to 18 together. Whereas the NIV, on the other hand, puts the break between verses uh, 15 and 16, and then the King James is different again. It puts verse 12 with the previous section, and verses 13 to 18 together. But I want us to see here that that just as the chapter breaks and verse breaks in Scripture can sometimes be helpful, they are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. We need to not let these, these artificial breaks feed our thinking and feed the way that we interpret this passage or understand the passage. We must be very careful not to not let such divisions cause us to miss the point. So in this passage, we're going to see four main points. As I said, they're all variations on a theme. The first one is that God promises salvation. The second one, that God protects from sin. That God providentially supplies. And that God predestines sinners. Now, I don't normally, as you're aware, I don't normally use alliteration when I when I prepare these, but it was kind of neat that these did all fit together. And it's, it's interesting, too, that they all start with GPS. So this is a GPS that will never lead you astray. When you focus on the character of who God is and then who we are as a reflection of that, this is a GPS that will always lead you home. So we'll focus on the first two this week and then the, the latter two next week. So the first one, God promises salvation. We see that there in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So let me ask you, would you consider somebody who is facing a trial blessed? James says we should. Or do you consider it joy, or let alone pure joy, to face trials? Again, James says that we should. What we're seeing here is the strange paradox that James introduced in verse 2, where he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Peter says similarly, similarly in, verse, in 1 Peter 3.14, Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. But we see here in James that the blessing is conditional. The blessing is conditional. It is only the person who remains steadfast to the end who will be blessed. 
Jesus taught that too. He said in Matthew 10, 20, 22, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And he said it also in Revelation 2, 11, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. So the blessing is only bestowed on the one who is steadfast. James repeats this, this in, verse, or in chapter 5, 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So James there uses Job as an example of steadfastness. You know the story well that the Lord allowed Satan to attack Job. First, Job lost everything, all of his possessions, and then his, his children, his sons and daughters were killed. And then he was, was attacked with, with, with a plague of sores, and we don't know exactly what that illness was, but, but he was, was left to just sit there in the ashes and scrape the, the sores with a piece of pottery. So Job was a man who was once in the, the highest position in his culture and then was brought to nothing. And then as if to add insult to injury, his supposed friends came to him and accused him saying that his calamities were the direct result of his sin. Now, if you did not have the last chapter of Job, you would not be able to make any sense of that book. At the end of Job, God comes to Job and, and challenges him and says, who are you to question me? But it's not until the very last chapter when, when Job is really humbled and places his hand over his mouth before a holy and sovereign God, when he is humbled, and then his, his fortunes are restored, and we, say, and we read that he actually had twice as much afterwards as he did before. Likewise, we can look to the example of the Apostle Paul. We wouldn't understand the life of the Apostle Paul unless we knew how his life finished. The Apostle Paul, we know, was, was beaten with rods three times, stoned, shipwrecked, sorry, shipwrecked three times in countless dangers and anxieties. But through it all, Paul was able to boast because those things revealed his weakness. He was able to say at the end of his life in 2 Timothy 2, 4, 8, sorry, 2 Timothy 4, 8, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. So the Christian who is going through trials is blessed because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. If it wasn't for the crown of righteousness that is the reward of every Christian, we would not understand trials. We certainly would not understand the, the trials of our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world unless we knew the end of the story. Nor can you understand your life and the trials that you face unless you know the end of the story. So, of course, the actual trial itself isn't the blessing. The actual trial isn't the blessing. 
Of course, many here are able to, try to, to testify of the way that the Lord has blessed you or is blessing you currently in the midst of a trial. Maybe it's with Holy Spirit comfort or sweet fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. But I don't think that we have to call the trial itself a blessing. Quite often, the blessing doesn't come until the end. And maybe not even at the end of our lives. The, the blessing might not come until the return of Christ. I find it highly doubtful that Christians in India or Pakistan actually enjoy the beatings that they receive for Christ. Or Christians who are in China and Iran who actually enjoy being imprisoned for their faith. And I find it doubtful that Christians in Uzbekistan or Kazakhstan actually enjoy paying huge fines simply because they are engaged in gospel ministry. But I want to ask us this morning, what do Job and Paul and our persecuted brothers and sisters all have in common? Christ. They have Christ in common, and they stood the test because of Christ. Because of Christ at work in their hearts. God did not deliver them out of their trials, but he delivered them through their trials. Likewise, God may not deliver you out of your trials but he will, fellow Christian, he will deliver you through your trials. That's a promise. In 1 John 2, 25, we read, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. God has promised us eternal life who is the, the, through the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, the guarantee of our salvation. The Holy Spirit is like a down payment of what will come in full at the return of Christ. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. It's grounded in the character of God. It's grounded in God's faithfulness. That's why if your faith is genuine, it will stand the test. If your faith is genuine, you will persevere to the end. You will remain steadfast under trials because God himself gives you the faith that you need. Faith is fruit of the Holy Spirit from Galatians 5.19. Faith is the gift of God that enables you to believe. In Romans 8.16-18, we read that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present tongue, the tongue, he uses the analogy of fruit. He says in, in chapter 2.18, I will show you my faith by my works. True faith is known by its fruits. We see this likewise in the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4. In Mark 4, there were, there were four different types of soil. In the first case, we see that the seed fell along the path and birds came and devoured it. In another, it fell on rocky ground and although it sprang up quickly, quickly because it had no root, when the, when the sun came out, it, it was scorched and it withered and died. And another, it fell among thorns that choked it. It was only the seed that was sown in good soil that took root and bore fruit. So I want to focus here, though, for a second on the second type of soil, the rocky ground. 
Jesus explains that, that when the, the seed falls on rocky ground, the individuals hear it and, and receive it initially with joy. But when persecution and trials happen because of the word, what happens to that, to that plant? It withers away. It withers away because it had no root. It's not a real plant. It's not a real tree that is going to give glory to God. The individuals there have not been born again by the Holy Spirit, so they fell away. John says similarly, similarly in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. So there might be a season in somebody's life when they will look like they're born again, but it is only those who endure to the end who will be saved. So why is it that you think that Job and Paul and persecuted Christians persevere? Are they better than anybody else? Are they more faithful? Are they more self-controlled? Yes and no. They are, they are all of those things, but they are none of those things in and of themselves. Let me say that again. They are all of those things, but they are none of those things in and of themselves. Each of the things that, that, that we talked about here, the, the faith, the, the self-control, the being, being good, that's all fruit of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit is in somebody's life, it will produce those fruits. It just will. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does in the life, in the life of a true believer. The strength to endure comes from the Holy Spirit's work in their hearts. Again, it all comes back to God's faithfulness. If we were left to ourselves when trials hit, we would all be headed for the hills. But because of the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts, we will remain steadfast to the end. Paul said in Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And Hebrews 12 Two, Jesus Christ is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. So fellow Christian, you will remain steadfast under trial. You will receive the crown of life because God is faithful. Because God is faithful. And then in verses 13 to 15, second point, we see that God protects from sin. God protects from sin. James says here in verses 13 to 15, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is fully conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So here, first of all, we see that nobody can say they're being tempted by God. God is not the author of evil. No one can say that the Lord is the cause of their temptation. The 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith says, 
God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass, yet so as thereby God is neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein. So although God is ultimately sovereign over all things, he is not the author of sin. He is not the direct cause of sin. The problem of evil is a problem that, that, that secular scholars argue about all the time. They say, if you Christians say that God is good, how then could a good God have created a wicked devil? People ask that question. It's, it's a challenging question. But we know that initially the devil was not created wicked. The devil fell away. But was God taken surprised by that? Did God somehow not know that this was going to happen? Did God not somehow know every single wicked act that the devil was going to do? Did he not know every single wicked act that you and I were ever going to do? No, of course, God is, God is, is omniscient. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows all things. But he is also ordaining all things so that ultimately, even the most horrible things will be turned around for his glory. And there is no better example of that than the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ was God's plan in eternity past. It was God's plan in eternity past to send his son to die for our sins. And Christ gladly, willingly went to the cross out of love for the Father and love for his people. And God turned that horrible situation around to bring the greatest glory and the greatest effect that has ever or will ever take place in the history of the universe. That is God in his sovereignty at work. So we know that although God is not the direct cause of temptation and not the direct cause of, of sinful trials, he allows them to come into our lives for his greater purposes. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may, may be able to endure it. We all face temptation. Do you struggle with temptation? First of all, you need to see that you're not alone. There is no temptation but that which is common to man, common. Others are struggling with the same temptations that you are. Others have gone before you, more mature Christians who can offer you counsel, who can pray for you, those who have had victory over those areas of temptation that you struggle with. So I would encourage you to go to them Talk to them. Ask them for help. Don't keep it a secret. 
We also need to see that temptation isn't sin. Temptation itself is not sin. However, giving oneself over to temptation is sin. Do you see that? If you are struggling against it, good. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. He was tempted in a way beyond any, that anything any human being have, has, has ever experienced. He was tempted, but without sin. The issue is when you actually give in to the temptation, when you allow yourselves to entertain those, those, those tempting thoughts. And then when you, when you give in to them physically. So if you're struggling, that's a good thing. Press on. The Lord will give you the victory. But you need to train yourself to look for the way out. Train yourself to look for that way of escape because God is faithful. He will provide that way out. But James goes on, each person is tempted when he is lured by his own and enticed by his own desire. So again, you can't blame God for your temptation. Temptation comes from your enemies. It comes from the world, the flesh, and the devil. So first of all, quickly, the world. When I ask the question here, how can you say that you want victory over sin in your life when you allow the world into your home and into your heart. When you watch inappropriate TV or inappropriate movies. When you allow yourself to, to look at those magazines there on the, on the rack at the grocery store or, or, God forbid, even take one home. When you do that, you're allowing the world into your heart. And the world then is like, it's like a Trojan horse that we gladly let inside the gates of the city. So we need, to, we need to, to realize that the world is our enemy and we need to fight against the world. Next enemy is the devil. And the devil is referred to as the tempter. We, we saw that from Matthew 4, how the tempter came to, to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. But how did Jesus fight against the tempter? with the sword of the Spirit that is the Word of God. So train yourself. Hide God's Word in your heart so that when those temptations come, you can wield the sword of the Spirit with deadly accuracy. And you can slay every false thought that exalts itself against God. But the last enemy that I want to focus on here, I believe, is also the most dangerous. And this is the one that James warns us against our own desires, our own desires, the flesh. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So it's not, it's not something on the outside here that's his enemy, it's something on the inside. It's like a sleeper cell, like enemy agents that are waiting inside for their opportunity to rise up and destroy you. The sinful flesh is like a monster that lives inside of you. So how do you fight against this enemy? Well, we've already talked about one way, by using the Word of God. Another way, clearly, is prayer. We ask the Lord, deliver us not into temptation. We ask the Lord for the strength that we don't have in ourselves. But there's another way that you can fight against this monster. You have to starve it out. Stop feeding it, and it will grow weak, 
and it will die. Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The one who sows to the flesh will from the, fle- will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So what does it mean here then to sow to the flesh? I don't believe it's just the pursuit of sin that Paul has in mind here. I believe here we could extend the the metaphor to include feeding our desires for immediate gratification or feeding our desires for pleasure and for fun. That is sowing to the flesh. Now, pleasure and fun are not wrong in and of themselves. But in our culture, pleasure and fun are idols to be pursued at all costs. And we need to see that the pursuit of pleasure and fun do come at a cost. They come at a cost to the well-being of our eternal soul. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.27, I discipline my body, or in some versions, I beat my body to bring it under subjection. Now he's not talking about the type of, of self-flagellation that Shiite Muslims do. He's talking about discipline. He's talking about depriving himself of of some fleshly desires that would not be wrong in and of themselves because he wants to grow spiritually, because he sees that he has an eternal soul that he wants to grow. So we need to cultivate. We need to cultivate discipline in every sphere of life as a guard against sin. And again, to finish here, this really is a matter of life and death. James says, Then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it has fully grown gives birth to death. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 John Owen said, You'd better be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. He got that from from Romans 8, 13, and 14. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. In Genesis 4, when Cain was jealous of Abel's offering, The Lord warned him. He said, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Brothers and sisters, sin is crouching at your door, and you must rule over it. You must, its desire is to control you and to kill you, but you must take the offensive against sin in your life and kill it before it kills you. But again, this shows the character of true faith. It shows the character of true faith. Those who are fighting against sin are those for whom faith is real. Earlier I spoke of the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5. Let's have a quick look there. Galatians 5, verses 19 to 24. Now the works of the flesh are evident. 
Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, no law. And those who belong to Christ, get that, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We have already crucified the flesh. But there is also an element of the already but not yet here. We have already crucified the flesh, but we are still to take up our cross daily. We have a daily fight against the flesh. We have to crucify it. We have to kill it every day in our lives. And if you are a Christian, you will be doing that. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, to do not, be, do not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Were, past tense. Not are some of you, were some of you. If you are those things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But if you were those things, if the Holy Spirit is alive in you and is changing you, making more into the image of Christ, then you will inherit the kingdom of God. Because you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And those things, all of them, although they took place in the past, they have an enduring effect that will take place into eternity in the future. So here where you read were washed, read are washed. Where you read were sanctified, read are sanctified. Where you read were justified, read are justified. And you can also add will be. You will be washed. You will be sanctified. You will be justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. That's a promise. Because God is faithful. Because God is faithful. The power of sin has been broken in our lives. It is dead, but we need to keep on killing it. In Colossians 3.5, put to death, therefore, what is fleshy within you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Again, in these you once, you once walked, when you were living in them. So we need to think of Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. We need to think of his faithfulness. The one who will help you to endure to the end. Maybe there's something here that, that I've, I've brought up in the course of this message that has brought conviction. Maybe there's an area of sin in your life that you are struggling with. But I really want you to be careful 
not to confuse conviction with condemnation. The Holy Spirit brings conviction. The devil, the accuser of the brethren, brings condemnation. If you are in Christ, there is no longer any condemnation. So for every time you look at yourself and your sin, you need to look ten times at Christ in the cross. You need to look to him who is faithful. As Paul said in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray.